This is The Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity, because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome to the Based Catholic. Like I've said before on the show, I don't like Netflix productions. However, I was pleasantly surprised with the recent World War II film adaptation of the book All the Light We Cannot See. The main male character is one of the best that's recently been written. And the story centers on the truth, goodness, and beauty that is encompassed in what could be considered one of the first podcasts, which got me thinking about the media we consume and the content I myself am producing. In a world that rewards bad behavior and the exploitation of people, that preys on our isolated existence and addicted tendencies, is it even possible to still make something that you're genuinely proud of that helps rather than harms? Hopefully you do, and that's why you keep tuning in to my one-woman show. My first guest is here to discuss the call-her-daddy phenomenon and how she grew out of that fad of women's media, because I sure as heck don't understand it. She expressed that the we're hot and have sex with everyone who wants to have sex with us lifestyle is appealing to a lot of women, that they all secretly want to be that girl. But it was always my thought that to be truly sought after, desired by men or envied by women, you had to turn down offers. You had to be a certain level of unattainable. Not easy. Jordan Peterson confirmed it for me in this clip. I don't think there's anything more attractive to a man than a sophisticated woman who knows how to say no. Like that's, that's top of the stack as far as men are concerned. And they'll do any, they'll do everything to test the, the, what would you call the thickness of that boundary. So I don't know how you tell that to young women. I don't even think men can probably. I've always argued this is universal for both men and women. I can't tell you how many times women have expressed to me the same desire to find a sophisticated man, someone normal and attractive with options who knows how to say no. In other words, a truly virtuous person that can withstand temptation so they can say yes to you. As my girl Anne Shirley put it when presented with such a question, Would you want to marry a wicked man? Well, I wouldn't marry anyone who was really wicked. And I think I'd like it if he could be wicked and wouldn't. Something I talked about with Jason Everett was the difference between a man looking at you and seeing you. And women pick up on the difference. We know. It's not actually a compliment to a woman for a man to want to sleep with you. A lot of them will sleep with anyone, even women that they don't like or find attractive. To be truly complimented means to be praised, to be put on a pedestal in the eyes of the one who extends you the compliment. And for it to be more than polite nonsense flattery, for it to be sincere, it requires discrimination, which is something the daddy gang and their men alike lack. I'm here with Patricia Patnode, a columnist at The Conservator, to discuss the social impact of Alex Cooper and the Call Her Daddy podcast. Patricia, you wrote a piece about this for the American Mind entitled The Millionaire Slut Apologist. I mean, accurate title. I myself have a segment on my show called The Call Her Traddy Segment, which is all in jest because I'm obviously the opposite of her brand and not a fan. To be completely transparent, I I think like a lot of people had never heard of her or this podcast before maybe a year ago because I knew I hated 
hated Barstool. And the only reason I even knew Barstool was because I worked for a year at what's maybe considered the conservative equivalent of that culture of media, The Daily Caller. So when I looked up the show, I was kind of horrified, not only by the content, but the delivery that these women were being taken so seriously and so far that this was considered a very successful podcast. What does it say when we consider the fact that this is the most listened to female podcast in the world? So I think we're in trouble. Young women are in trouble. (laughs) It's a pretty precarious situation. And like the target audience is mostly ages like 17, I'd say to 25. And it's just seeding the ground with really bad lifestyle advice frankly. You wrote how Alex or this type of media is basically making bank off of lost young women. And I was thinking, you know, it saddens but doesn't shock me that women who sell images of their bodies to lost men on OnlyFans make bank. But how is this breed of what I call podcast prostitutes, basically talking smut for cash, getting rewarded by women? Like what do women gain in the propagation of this brand? It's fun. Like the show is fun. I was a listener from like maybe their first couple episodes. It was really, really big with college girls. It was basically an instant hit within the first 10 episodes of the series. And then it spread to women out of college. And then as the women in college graduated, their now age target is like through women in their early 30s. And now it like trends younger. This is the main media brand for young college-aged women that's now spread to a lot of other places to the point that Alex has started her own company that is farming similar podcasts and identifying other hosts of her brand to evangelize this like, have sex, who cares, message further. Well, you know, here's the thing. As far as modern female creatives go, you know, I like Nancy Myers, Nora Ephron, Taylor Swift, Greta Gerwig, even Lena Dunham. I like good writing. Even if I hate what they're writing and what they're promoting, I think the best writing is writing that's universal and specific, which I think they've all mastered and it's insanely hard to do. I think the reason I'm at a loss of understanding Call Her Daddy is because I don't understand Alex Cooper's success because I honestly don't see the genius. My assumption is she kind of just took the shortcut that's on offer to women or at least a certain type of woman because, and I'm not trying to be rude, but she kind of creeps me out. Like her MO just seems so crazy and obnoxious. And she emulates this kind of faux confidence, which I think masks probably an insecurity and self-hatred because she always talks about her awkward years. And she runs around with no pants on. Like, There's just nothing about her that seems different or genuine. You said it was fun, but what made you listen to her as a Catholic woman? Like, What was the insight that you were gleaning from her that you couldn't get from any other female podcast? They were society sugar babies to like my knowledge, they were the first hot women to say what everyone kind of knows that hot women are thinking that like our lives are better because we're hot. People do nice things for us because we're hot and we can do whatever we want because we're hot. Like to an extent, like there's a time horizon on that. Like being in your early 20s and being like a super classically attractive woman and being kind of slutty, it's like being a celebrity with how society rewards you. So they capitalized Mm. on that. They were honest about the privilege that comes with that. It was like moths to a flame where all the women were like, oh, finally, like people are talking honestly about the social economy of being like a hot sorority girl and like sleeping with the football team. I just think it's interesting that the behavior women constantly complain about in men is now being celebrated amongst other women by the fact that they have such a wide listenership. It's also pretty sad 
because we're going to see them age and kind of see like the social repercussions like spill out in their own lives. Alex is engaged to like a wealthy guy and will probably have like a relatively normal life if things continue how they have for her. But like Sophia is like 32 or 33 is kind of doing the same thing. And to me, her life seems quite a bit more sad. And I think we're going to see that in a lot of their listeners who have now cultivated all of these very problematic habits and like not reflected on like how that affects their emotional well-being and just like ability to be in normal relationships or how that's affected their social capital and reputation and the communities that they're in. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll probably play out similar to that of men where, you know, some guys will, you know, be the biggest dirtbag and land on their feet. Other ones yeah, we'll be the sad kind of creepy guy hitting on women half his age. Now, mm-hmm. do you think she capitalized on the Kardashian technique, which instead of us seeing how slutty she can dress, we're now just waiting to see how slutty she can sound? Like, is that the premise of the podcast is how how crass can we talk? Yeah, exactly. They would intentionally talk like guys. Like their shtick was, we're talking about sex as women, how guys talk about sex as men. Like this is female locker room talk, except it's worse. Interesting. Well, I was reading other reviews from other women and one described that she didn't like it at first, which reminds me kind of how people's reaction to drinking alcohol for the first time is, you know, it's a poison. It's not meant to taste good, but people out of their desire for social capital force themselves to acquire a taste for it. And then she also said after consuming it for a while, she noticed she started to talk like them with like a grady, whiny voice. Why Mm -hmm. does our culture like to hate watch or at least continue to get addicted to things that we know aren't good for us? I think a lot of young women are in situationships. So then hearing this talk, I think that draws people in and it gives them a sense of like control, power, and entertainment. They're the main character of the movie that they're watching. Interesting. Well, it's funny that you say that because as far as that I'm aware, there are no subjects of real substance being discussed on the podcast. It was mostly about gratuitous sex, relationships, kind of living the mantra, do it for the story. Mm-hmm. Which then ends up exploiting real persons and situations for content. I was thinking about how that's so trendy right now, especially TikTok, Instagram stories, reels. How do we turn do it for the story on its head and have it instead mean do it for the story that you're going to tell your future children or grandchildren, you know, how you met their mother or father? How do we go from coping with our vocationless life to living for our future vocations in mind instead? That is a little bit of of human nature. We want funny stories to share. Well, I think it's a way of people coping with the pain of like, maybe this isn't the life that they want. And so they're trying to make the best of it. And their interpretation of making the best of it is, well, how can I take back the power in this situation? Because I feel so powerless. Yeah, I th- I think there's something to do with that. I think we need to communicate to people and the behavior that you exhibit at like all stages of your life is contributing to the person that you will be in the future. Yes. So if you sleep with every person that you possibly can at 19, that's going to affect your relationships at 30. Like this is not a season of life where you can do whatever you want, like for men and for women. I think we miss that in college. Like I went to a Catholic college. I think that was a huge message missing because the message was focused on acceptance engaging people. We love everyone language when it should be. You're forming yourself as a person of faith and as a person in the world. And you need to be careful of what you do at every point in your life because you are sculpting a statue. Like like you are, you are a piece of art that you are creating and painting. 
You said in your piece that their motto was be crazy diet, have sex with rich men, then lie to your future husband. And I was thinking about it. Like, I'm obviously assuming these are the women that are driving a lot of the female hatred from the manosphere, especially since they acted like for the longest time they never wanted to get married. And now Alex is getting engaged. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is the type of woman that the men in the manosphere are mad at? Like, oh, yeah, do whatever you want. And then lie to us, you know, right when you're at the age where you finally do want to get married. I mean, I would argue men do the same. But do you think that there are a lot to blame for the issues that we're seeing right now in the manosphere? I think they're more of a reflection than the drivers. They are famous, but they're also famous because people are interested in consuming their content and we're already acting like that and interested in acting like that. Interesting. Okay. Well, it seems that there is a lot of content right now being made by millennial women about relationship trauma, which I just think is the reality of the sexual revolution being played out and premarital sexual relationships and the severing of soul ties with breakups that now feel like divorces. Because by nature, premarital sex teaches you to use others for your own personal self-gratification rather than what the Catholic message is, which is to die to yourself for your own personal sanctification for the sake of the other. So when I'm seeing a lot of this content, you know, on one hand, I'm like, okay, I think sometimes they're getting it. Like, let's not be used and abused by men who don't care about us. And then the next minute, it seems like a lot of them are preaching, you can always leave a relationship that's not serving you, implying divorce is fine. If you're not happy, just leave. Why does the truth of Catholic sexual ethics not yet have a foothold with them? So Alex Cooper went to Catholic schools and she's talked quite a bit about Yeah, of course she did. And she talked quite a bit about I think Catholic schools produce. Let me just (laughs) remind everyone. It's yeah, it's really sad. And she talks about how her and a lot of her friends that went to the same schools had a really bad understanding and bad relationship with sex, how women should be treated in sex and like what sex means. She specifically blames her Catholic education for giving her like a messed up worldview that didn't used to be an infrequent like topic of conversation on her show, which is really sad. Some of that is her fault because we all have like a duty to like educate catholic theology of the body is like very useful very helpful like very positive i love it it's yeah like, it's it, it, should, it should change everyone's life if they read john paul ii it makes me wonder what her school was actually teaching or not teaching what was her complaint like her chief complaint women orgasming is really bad and that it really like harmed her relationship with sex and like with women being like satisfied and feeling fulfilled in sex john um, paul ii <laughs> literally writes about the female orgasm in love and responsibility he says quote we have defined love as an ambition to ensure the true good of another person and consequently as the antithesis of egoism. Since in marriage a man and a woman are associated sexually as well as in other respects, the good must be sought in this area too. From the point of view of another person, from the altruistic standpoint, it is necessary to insist that intercourse must not serve merely as a means of allowing sexual excitement to reach its climax in one of the partners, i.e. the man alone, but that climax must be reached in harmony, not at the expense of one partner, but with both partners fully involved, end quote. Well, your final line was, call her daddy was a microism of everything that's wrong with influencer culture. What makes for viral content doesn't necessarily make for a good life. Do you think we're ever going to get away from rewarding narcissistic types who rule on social media? I mean, do you think we'll ever see an end to this? I don't think we will because we can observe and post things so quickly and make our lives seem so good, the reward structure will never improve. Like there will always be money for a woman or a man, especially a young woman or a man that's attractive and kind of funny and charismatic that wants to prostitute their life's examples and things that happen to their friends online. There will always be a market for that. Gossip columns have existed as long as newspapers existed. 
Welcome back to the Call Her Traddy segment where I give my trad reaction to what's trending. So I saw this video trending on Instagram reels and what's been communicated in it is really disturbing. Take a listen to America's Future Husbands. Who comes first, your mom, your daughter, or your wife? Mom. Mom. Daughter, wife. Daughter, wife. Wife replaceable. Okay. Oh, wow. Replaceable. Okay. So this is like hypothetical when I'm like later in life in my 30s when I have all three of those. Okay. So I would say at that point, I'd probably pick like daughter, then wife, then mom. But I love my mom a lot. I love my mom. Respect, respect. How are you feeling? Uh, daughter, if I'm on good terms with my wife, then wife, and okay. then mom. But if not, then mom in the middle. Daughter? Daughter's at one, okay. Uh-oh. Oh! Daughter, mom, wife. Daughter, mom, wife? Because, you know what I'm saying? You can always find another wife. You can't have another daughter. That's your life that you brought into the world. Okay. And your mom, my mom brought me into the world. So it goes okay. daughter, mom, wife. Okay. okay. I was raised by a single mother, so my mom's got to come first. Mom first, okay. Then my daughter. Then, then your daughter. Wife. Then your wife. Then my wife. Okay. Why wife at the last? Because if I have a daughter, like, that's that's my baby. Okay. Like, okay. I got to okay. I gotta put my daughter that's first. I think it's safe to say they're going to make bad ones. For the record, the only correct answer to that was wife, daughter, mother. Few things I noticed in this. One was raised by a single mother. Now, I have absolutely nothing against single mothers. It's an unfortunate reality of the world that we live in. But that mother should be raising her son to be a good husband one day, not to fill the role of husband, the man in her life, for her. Clearly, he never saw his father put his mother first, so now he doesn't know how to do that in his own marriage. And the cycle of broken relationships continues. That's unfair to him and his future wife. Viewing a wife as replaceable is also problematic. Not only does it treat relationships and marriage as transactional and temporary upon condition, which actually isn't love at all, but your children are the fruit of your vocation, the fruit of your marriage. They are not your vocation. You are not in covenant with them. Literally none of these men have apparently heard of Ephesians 5, where St. Paul tells men to die to themselves for the sake of their wife and a thousand small daily deaths so that if they are ever called to literally die for their wife, they can. Truly great Catholic relationships are when the spouses put each other first before their kids and can then be a strong unit for their kids. So I wanted to present you with a counterexample to hold as the standard in your own life. Prince Albert and Queen Victoria are one of, if not my favorite, historical couple. In one of my favorite films, The Young Victoria, after they just had a fight and they were not on good terms, Prince Albert literally takes a bullet for his pregnant wife. Listen to what he says after she finds that he survived the shot. Why did you do it? You're so stupid. Why did you do it? I had two very good reasons. First... I am replaceable, and you are not. You are not replaceable to me. Second, you are the only wife I've got or ever will have. You are my whole existence. I will love you until my last breath. Yeah, it's not that our standards are too high. It's that modernities are too low. Stay tuned for my interview on homeschool football leagues and why Catholics should consider it with J.P. DeGans when we come back. Welcome back to The Base Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer. 
There's a lot wrong with Catholic schools. I have a bone to pick with them for sure. And I definitely want to get into that in future episodes. But I do touch a little bit on the subject with my next guest in this interview. Homeschool football leagues are largely unknown and largely evangelical, but is this something that Catholic families should start forming as an alternative to really bad Catholic formation in Catholic schools? So how did your son's team do? Great. We finished the season undefeated, won the Division II bracket of the tournament, and it's the highest ranked nationally our program's ever been. It's an entire world that I didn't, I didn't know about. I am back with J.P. DeGantz, the founder and president of Communio. You might remember him from a previous episode where we discussed the connection between the shrinking of the church and the decline of marriage. But today we're going to be discussing his son's high school homeschool football league. I think everyone knows that Tim Tebow, probably the most famous homeschool football player, played for his local public high school. But few people know that there's a growing movement of homeschool football teams across the country. JP, I saw stats on the association's website as far back as 2008, but you and your family heard about it five years ago. Why do you think it's not as talked about or as well known, considering that you said the teams in Texas and Oklahoma are really good? Is that an indication yeah. that it's not as popular? Well, there's yeah, there's a number of reasons. A big reason is that certain states, homeschoolers are allowed to play for their local public high school. What is called now the Tim Tebow Law, colloquially in a lot of states, has been passed or tried to pass it around the country. When those laws pass, it's rarer for these teams to form. These teams frequently form as a need to create an outlet for varsity high school experiences. We belong to the Northern Virginia Homeschool Athletic Association, which is a phenomenal group. It's a ministry created by a great couple, evangelical Baptist couple, Wayne and Amy Stillwell. And they, they formed it eight years ago themselves. And it's grown. And in the fall, you have cross-country, volleyball, and football are the varsity sports. And then they have basketball and wrestling in the winter and track and they're launching lacrosse in the spring. You know, our football team has 43 players on it. It's uh, mostly an evangelical program, but about a, about a dozen of the kids were were Catholics, and, and they've been super friendly and uh, welcoming. I just think the world of the organization used to have our kids in Catholic school. We homeschool now. And one of the things that, as a dad think of the formation of a child in a lot of different dimensions. There's obviously the spiritual formation, the academic formation, the human formation, and sports is part of all that formation, right? We yeah. don't want to have it. Sports are important. We don't want to have a disordered view of sports, right? They do a great job of fostering competitiveness. Our motto this year as a team was be great, but stay humble. And that was sort of the theme of the devotionals throughout, throughout the season. Oh, that's awesome to hear that they do that, too. Well, I wanted to ask a little bit about how it works. So instead of state championships, the association holds a national tournament. Does that mean that you only play against other homeschool teams? Like, how do you form a regular season schedule? Are you traveling across yeah, the country? Question. Yeah, you typically, you know, you want to try to get to about eight to 10 regular season games a year. We play some nearby public schools, some nearby private schools. We are part of a league that's formed called the Eastern Christian Conference that has four homeschool teams in the mid-Atlantic. And so we play a conference schedule. You become a conference champion. Homeschool teams in Ohio, Michigan, Texas. And, and how, do they, how do they stack up against you know normal schools? Because you know I'm sure you have less to pull from. I mean, I don't know yeah. if homeschooling has gotten increasingly more popular. 
How do you guys do? We do we do pretty well. In high school football, there's an analytics service called Cal Prep, which has an advanced analytic that ranks all the teams in the country. There's some upwards of 15,000 teams. Our team finished the season in the Cal Prep rankings in the low 8,000. It's like right in the middle. In Florida, where I'm from, I grew up, we'd be like a 2A program. The national champion this year, Tomball Christian, ended the season in the 4,000, so substantially higher. Big challenge with homeschooling, depending on the way state champions are crowned in your state, you're penalized for playing them. Okay, so in the state of Virginia, there's a point system. If you want to win the state championship in whatever classification you are, you need to accrue enough points to make the playoffs. And you can only get points if you play teams eligible to give you points. So homeschool teams are ineligible up until recently in the state of Virginia. Private schools couldn't play public schools because private schools couldn't get any points for playing them. And so you you saw- Wow. That is shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some litigation changed that. The homeschool teams are still on the outside looking in. So it really depends on the state. It depends on the state. I was curious, you know, what is more popular, homeschoolers playing on a public high school football team or playing on a team like your son's? Like, are there any situations where people have a choice and then they pick one or the other? You know, that's a great question. I, I, there are 30 or so varsity teams around the country. Most of them exist in places where there isn't the option. We just played the Lighthouse Christian Crusaders, and this is a very impressive high school program. They've just recently purchased a facility They'll have athletic fields, locker room, stadium, the whole nine from that perspective. But it's 100% a homeschool association. So raised by private philanthropy and the blood, sweat, and equity of, of the volunteers. who Wow. Who where, where are they located? They're in the, the Springfield, Missouri area. It's actually run by a former NFL offensive line, played for the Kansas City Chiefs. You said that it's an evangelical movement. Since most homeschoolers are probably Protestant and Catholics are sending their kids to establish Catholic schools... How many Catholics would you say are involved? And because Catholic schools are as abysmal as they are by and large, why are options like this so important for Catholics to take and run with? Yeah, look, you got to understand we had our kids in a good Catholic school, right, for years. The, the Dominicans of Nashville run our grade school and, and high school. I can tell you, like any, any parent knows, right, Catholic identity is complicated, And you can have a very faithful leadership in a school. But what's also plays into Catholic identity is the families that are there, right? Yeah. Um, And if you have four holy sisters running the school and then you have incredibly worldly families, it's a a challenge from a Catholic identity perspective and formation perspective. So I think, you know, Catholic schools are frequently chasing tuition dollars. They, you know, they feel the need to do that. And that usually means it comes at a cost of those who can pay go. My vocation as a parent is to ensure I do the best job possible of introducing faith to my children so that my children can know, love, and serve God so that they can be happy forever in heaven and that I can see them for all eternity in heaven. That is a huge responsibility. And there's obviously other reasons that parents might choose to opt away from Catholic school. There's cost. We have eight children, and that's a lot of tuition there. Um, so, Aren't there supposed to be deals the more kids you send, though? <laughs> you get there, X amount of dollars off? Yeah, there can be, and there are. Yeah, uh, but, but it's still they a don't, lot. It's not, it's not limitless. For us, a huge area was that our kids had learning disabilities, learning differences, right? Dyslexia, just the brain just works differently. For us as parents, it became important for us to figure out a different way to educate them. We have had our kids in Catholic homeschooling co-ops and in curriculum. We've used Aquinas Learning. Younger grades, we've used the evangelical program. 
classical conversations. Sports is a big thing, right? It's part of the school experience. I shared with the team, I was able to lead the devotionals in a number of, of weeks. Every Thursday, we'd have practice end a little bit early and, and have a short 20-minute devotional. One of them I shared with them is a story about how football came to be. Football was formed largely during the Civil War and then was proliferated after the Civil War by veterans because they understood it was a really good way to form discipline in men and to form perseverance and physical grit and all of the intangibles that are good for men and sharing that with the boys. I noted, yes, working really hard to get faster, get bigger, get stronger. That's all important. But what's more important, being physically good in football, we're putting more work into our life as an athlete than we are into the spiritual life. I had you know, a number of boys and the parents reach out to say thank you for those devotionals. Two of my sons now have gone through the program and I got so much out of it. And I think lifelong friendships that you form. I still today am friends with boys from my high school football team and I graduated in 98, right? So <laughs> so I still talk to them. We have a texting thread. I think those experiences when I was in high school were so formative for me, had a huge influence on who I became, learning, self-discipline, work ethic, all of that stuff. Well, I love the fact that you're incorporating devotionals into the program and you would assume that a Christian or a Catholic school would be doing that. Oftentimes they're probably not. That was I, not my experience in my Catholic high school. I can promise you that. Yeah. Uh, now I was going to go off because you were talking about homeschooling long term. Do you think it's more possible to reform Catholic schools or try to get something like these Catholic homeschool athletic teams to become as competitive? Like what would actually yeah, look, be an easier task? Catholic education has a crisis fundamentally because it doesn't know what it's trying to achieve. Yeah. What's the purpose of the Catholic school? Is it to help form Catholics and, and get them to heaven? Is it to be an excellent academic experience? Is it to help the poor and those who are on, don't have material access to good education? Typically, the answer is yes to all three of those things. And Is the first one true, though? I don't know. I, sure, well, what, I think a lot of them will say that. I think the issue is that they'll say yes to all three. And as a consequence, they actually don't do any of them well. So frequently, you know, you have schools where most of the teachers aren't getting a mass on Sunday. And maybe the principal's not getting a mass on Sunday. So you can't give what you don't have. I can't pour out life into you when I don't have it abundantly. But our Lord said he wants to make us a river. And the folks running our schools very rarely have that. Okay? Yeah. And I, look, now I know that's going to sound sharp to some. No, uh, it's it's I, very I, I, accurate I, for people who went to Catholic schools. Right. Look, I grew up going to Catholic schools. I was on the sidelines as a player when a referee at a game that we played against a public school who chastised the coach. You're a coach for a Catholic school with the mouth like that. Most of these schools are, are very world. As my primary responsibility as a parent is to do everything I can to cooperate with the Holy Spirit for the salvation of my children. If the school's going to advance that objective, if I can evaluate it dispassionately, not because I grew up going to the school or because it's my alma mater or because my family's always done this, but if I can really dispassionately evaluate it, and the answer is yes, then great. Send your kids there. But if the answer is no, then you're going to have to answer to God at judgment for that. Well, I mean, one thing that I've always thought is, do they advertise how many kids retain the faith and actually remain Catholic? Or do they advertise college no, admission rates? I mean, the priority seems to always be we're public school, but we're better because you pay money. And we throw a little bit of Jesus on top. But like, to be honest, I went to a Catholic high school and I was an outsider. I was a Protestant, but... Nobody had explained that the church was not man-made, that it was actually founded by Christ. And no one explained the difference in what Catholics believed about the Eucharist to what Protestants believed. 
So the fact that I went through four years of religion classes and yet those concepts had never broken through to me. I mean, that was that was stunning to me looking back. Yeah, I look, I get pretty surly on this topic as well. I, the, <laughs> I definitely want to talk know, more about it in, in episodes to come because I do think it's a huge problem. It, it is, right? The reality is, is if you were to do zero cost budgeting annually, every ministry out in the church and then allocate capital as, as if you could do this, like imaginary exercise. You were the guy running the show, zeroed out all the funding in different areas. And then you said, let's allocate capital based on what's producing fruit, right? Like like what's fruitful. Right now, there's no doubt that Catholic schools in particular, and I'll say CCD program also in general, do a phenomenal job forming former Catholics. When you hear someone in a conversation usually say something to the effect of, oh, I was confirmed, or I went to CCD, or I went to Catholic school. And then there's like a comma, right? Usually like the implication is that like, hey, I was formed. I know this stuff. Comma. Now, this is why I don't (laughs) believe any of that stuff anymore. There's some great movements in Catholic education right now. Okay, Duke and Altum is a great organization that has a network of schools in different parts of the country that are deeply faithful. Can't have multiple purposes and do them well. Yeah. Right. And I would say to create the analogy, physical analogy, Think about your average Catholic parish. Your average Catholic parish has this building that I call the Catholateria, a place that was built where mass was held. And then it was also a gym and school cafeteria. And it can do all of those things. Mm-hmm. And it actually doesn't do any one of those things well. It's actually horrible at all three of those things. It's like a hodgepodge yeah. room. And, yeah. <laughs> and our schools are trying to do, they've got too long of a list of the things that, that they think that they're they're doing and they're actually not doing any of them particularly well. Now, I have a question. Now, for let's say you are homeschooling, but your kid is really, really gifted as an athlete. Are any players getting attention from college recruiters in leagues like this? Yeah, there was there was a Oklahoma University of Oklahoma commit on one of the, the teams. I mean, this major division one program. My son is a place kicker. He's pretty good. He's ranked number one in the state of Virginia. Wow. Or in a stat called kickoff yard. and uh, Another Harrison Bucker? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. He wants to kick in college, and there's a couple schools he's, he's in touch with now. We're encouraging him along the Newman Guide route. Uh, there's a couple colleges amongst the Newman Guides that have, have football programs that we're thinking he may go to. So it's not Some limiting. Boy, yeah, it's not. It is. Look, like I played for a competitive, large Catholic school in South Florida, has now won multiple state championships and sends guys to the NFL now. And um, Great tradition, yeah. And your number one priority is that you want your kid to play Division One Power 5 football, right? I would say this is not... Most kids the, don't even... No, right? Anyway, so yeah. No, most, yeah. The vast majority of kids aren't... <laughs> They're not the getting the, Division One scholarships, but, yeah. yeah. It's rare for your for anyone to do that anyway. I'm curious if Tim Tebow, if he had the option, what he would have chosen. But I actually also wanted to ask you, is it possible for classical Catholic high school kids to join these teams? Because that's something that I've also heard in discussions with Catholics is, you know, I had a friend who, when she was making the decision on what high school to go to, you know, there is a part of you that wants the fullness of the Catholic high school experience versus a Catholic classical school that might have had a better curriculum, but there were like five kids in your grade and it was very limiting in terms of extracurriculars. So is it possible for kids that go to really, really small private schools that don't have teams to join or is this strictly for homeschoolers? So a lot of the teams allow for composite rosters for the team to be eligible 
for the national tournament, they have to be majority homeschool. There's a team in our conference that has a situation where there's a small classical evangelical school in Delaware. It's not big enough to field a football team, and they provide some players for the homeschool team. Ultimately, it'll be up to the administrator of the team. Like I said, you can go on the National Homeschool Football Association website. We've been invited to a season kickoff bowl game in Lucas Arena, where the Indianapolis Colts play, play against a team from Cincinnati. Teams will fundraise, get sponsors to, to do cool stuff uh, like games that. like that. Yeah. Really neat stuff. Really yeah. neat experiences. I'll tell you, my boys, they love going on the team bus down to Panama City, Florida, which is like, sounds super painful to me from where we are in Virginia. It's one of those great high school experiences that uh, are hard to recreate on your own if you're doing homeschooling without community. And lastly, you know, you spoke about the devotional aspect. What do outsiders who encounter the team and the boys, what do they think about this whole thing? I mean, what's what's the fruit that they're seeing? How is this league coaching football differently? We've got a reputation as a league because when we play each other, when we play another Christian homeschool team, after you shake hands, we circle up and they'll say, hey, it's time to mix it up. And the guys, both teams get into a big circle and each coach speaks it's about the other team, and then players call out other players by the numbers and say, hey, number 17, great game. Number 14, great game. That's right? cool. This is what you guys did. The idea that they say is, hey, look, we're enemies on the field, but brothers in common faith. Then that circle ends with the prayer. And I know the last time we played John Paul the Great High School, the coach said, hey, we'd like to circle up with you guys. You know, we've gone to games at public schools and our teams get mocked because we're homeschoolers. Our boys don't respond, right? Now, we do respond on the field. We were undefeated this year because the culture of the team stressed the Christian identity of the team. We don't have the, the kind of altercations routinely that you'd have from such trash talking and what have you. Yeah, it sounds like there's a maturity and a classiness to the way that you guys handle yourselves. I'm just an assistant. I tell people, I'm this low man on the totem pole. <laughs> that hasn't been clear made clear before. I'm the special teams coach. And that means I basically count everybody, make sure we have 11 <laughs> for kickoff. We've got a great coach, great set of you know, godly men that are our assistant coaches. I mean, really good men. Men that I want my sons to be around. Right. And with other boys that I want my sons to be around, hmm. you know, would love to see, you know, Catholic parents and communities get organized and organize these kinds of teams in the future. That's all I have for you this week. I want to thank my guests for coming on. Mark for helping me with this week's episode. Father Kevin for being our show's chaplain and you for listening. Make sure to be sharing these episodes with anyone who you think might enjoy them, specifically anyone based. Animal based. If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.